0: I have terrible eyesight. Terrible. I don't mean I don't see things particularly well. I mean, if I don't have glasses or contacts, I cannot function. I'm blind. I found this out when I was in the first grade, second grade. My parents took me to the eye doctor, and they gave me all the tests and stuff, and then I got glasses and contacts. But you know what's interesting about that is that means I went years, seven or eight years, walking around not knowing what I couldn't see. I'm surprised I wasn't like Mr. Magoo, you know, walking around, bumping into walls and falling off of bridges and things like that. You know, there were times, I remember this very vividly, I'd be watching TV when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, TVs were significantly smaller than they are now and way deeper. You know, so you'd have like a 20-inch screen that was like 55 inches deep. Anyway, the screen was small, so I'd be standing kind of close to it, and I can't see because I'm trying to watch the TV. And my mom would say something like this to me, don't stand too close to the TV, you're going to ruin your eyesight. And I was like, Mom, it's too late. You did this to me. Your DNA made me like this. I can't see anything. And as I've gotten older, it's only gotten worse. Every time I go to the eye doctor, it's humiliating, humiliating. You know, you walk in there, and they say, take out your contacts. I'm like, oh, great. So they do it, and then they put the eye test in front of you. I've shown you one here. They put the eye test up, and then they give you the little thing to cover your eye with. Now, this is a spoon that my son has used to eat yogurt, so it was the best I could come up with, but they tell you to cover your eye, and then eye doctor says, tell me, read the smallest line you could see. And like I told you, I can't see anything. So I'm trying to look at like the biggest line and I'm focusing and I'm like A, hey, seven, fish, Egyptian hieroglyphic, I can't see anything. It's humiliating. But you know, eventually the doctor then will put these lenses in front of your face. I know a lot of you have done this before. They'll start flipping new lenses and they flip more. And each time they flip, they ask, what do you see? What can you see? And the stuff that is initially really blurry or you can't see, it starts to become clear. But the part that's even more wild when it happens, at least for me, is not just the stuff that's blurry becoming clear, but all of a sudden, there are magical lines that I did not even know existed in the first place. I could not see them, and then all of a sudden, I can read them. My eyes are so bad that there are things that I just cannot see show up in front of me. And, you know, I've thought about this before, what would my life be like if glasses and contacts were never invented? Or, you know, if I were alive several hundred years ago and those weren't an option, what would happen to me? And I think it's pretty obvious I wouldn't be particularly functional. You know, I couldn't drive for sure, and I like driving, wouldn't be able to do that. It'd be hard for me to read. I would have difficulty safely cooking or cleaning around the house. Now, my wife's here in the front row, and she's like, he doesn't do that anyway, which is fair. But if I didn't have these things at my disposal, I wouldn't be able to see anything. There's just so much that I can't see. But you know, the, the human eye, the way that God has made it, even for the person who has good vision 2020, 2010, don't make fun of me for whatever your vision is when I can't see. But even you have things that you, that you can't see. I, I have an image here to show you what it looks like, uh, how the human eye works. This is a, a, a GIF, is what I've been told. They're supposed to be called. I've always pronounced them GIF, but apparently I was wrong. But in this GIF you'll see the way that your eye works. So say you're looking at that screen right now, or if I'm looking at the front row of these chairs, I'm seeing light reflect off those chairs. That's what I'm perceiving. You are perceiving light reflect off the screen, or off of me, and what happens is the light goes into the front of your eye. So it's your cornea and your pupil, and your eyeball bends the light in such a way that it signals to the back of your eye, your retina, It it signals it correctly so that it then sends an electromagnetic pulse to the optic nerve of your brain. And then your brain interprets that to show you what is happening right in front of you. God did something amazing when he made the human eye. It's just unbelievable. But even an eye that is working perfectly and functionally like that, there are things that it can't see. There are frequencies of light that the eye was not designed to pick up. You know this experientially. You walk around life, and there are times that you smell things, gases, that you can't see. Now, there's a lot of jokes I can make right now, but I'm not going to make them. There's other things in creation in the material universe that are invisible to the eye. The electromagnetic field that covers the entire universe, you can't see it. Gravity, you can't see it. But you know that they exist. And this morning, I just have one simple idea, simple question that I want us to consider. Is it possible that, in the same way, there are things in the material universe that you can't see with your eye? Is it possible? that there are things that God might be doing in the world around you or in your life that you just can't see at the moment? Is it possible that there are things that are happening that are just beyond the scope of your vision? We're gonna read a passage this morning about a guy who knew that things were there, had hope of what God was doing, even when it was not visible to the naked eye. We'll be reading about a guy named Elisha and we'll be in 2 Kings. Just a couple things for you to know about Elisha. These next. A couple minutes are going to be the most confusing part of the sermon, so you'll have to focus with me for just a minute to understand where we're going. Elisha was a prophet of Israel. God called him to tell things and do things in Israel. But he learned from the prophet who came before him, whose name was Elijah. So this doesn't sound very creative on God's part. Why didn't he pick more different names than this? I'm not one to second guess. God knows things I don't know. But Elisha and Elijah, almost identical names, and that's who we're going to be talking about today, Elijah was also a prophet of the Lord who did ridiculous things during his lifetime. Maybe the most famous story from Elijah's life is that he had a showdown with the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. They said, whoever's God can burn up this altar wins the contest. So Elijah called, prayed out to God, God sent fire from heaven, destroyed the altar, and then burned up the prophets of Baal just, you know, for spare keeping. That was a big moment in his life. He did a whole bunch of ridiculous things. Unless he got old. God told Elijah, there's going to be another person who's going to take up the mantle of being my prophet, and it's this guy, Elisha. So at the end of Elijah's life, Elisha saw some incredible things. Just a couple of examples that I'll give you. One of them, uh, Elisha watched as the king of Israel sent multiple bands of soldiers to try and talk to Elijah, and each time, Elijah would pray, and God would send down fire from heaven to burn up the soldiers. It seems like this guy only had one move, burn up with fire from heaven. So he saw that. The other thing he saw was that the Lord told Elijah, your time is coming to its end, and Elisha was able to watch as Elijah was taken up in a whirlwind into heaven. Elijah didn't even die. God just took him into heaven, and Elisha saw that. So I just question this. If I were Elisha, and I had seen these things, would I maybe have a unique perspective on what God is doing in the world? Of course, of course you would. And so in the passage we're gonna read today, we're gonna see an example of Elisha having hope and knowledge of what God is doing even when it was invisible. A little bit of background here. In this particular passage, we're in in 2 Kings chapter six. There was a opposing king to Israel, the king of Aram. This is modern day Syria that we're talking about. And the king of Aram was sending in raiding parties of soldiers to basically uh, kill some of the people of Israel and take their stuff and run away. So they would run in, kill some people, take their stuff and leave. But God started to tell Elisha beforehand where these raiders were going to come. I'm not talking about the football team. I'm talking about these band of pillaging raiders. So God would tell Elisha, and then Elisha would tell the king of Israel, and the king of Israel would position his soldiers accordingly. Well, eventually, the king of Aram got upset about this. He said, this guy knows even the things that I'm whispering in my bedroom. I need to either kill or capture this Elisha. So he takes all of his soldiers, all their chariots, all their horses, and they surround the village where Elisha was. So Elisha's there surrounded by hundreds, if not thousands of soldiers. And we'll pick up what it says here in verse 14 of Second Kings 6. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, alas, my master, what shall we do? So Elisha hasn't even woken up at this point. His servant is the morning person. This might have been Elisha's protege, the person he was mentoring. So he wakes up. How many of you here are morning people? I'm sure there's many of you. I don't understand you. I never will. But he wakes up and he gets his morning coffee and he's stretching. He's like, oh, what a beautiful day. And then he sees this army of people that are there to kill them. And he goes to Elisha and says, we are going to die. We have no chance of beating these people. Elisha responds in verse 16. So he answered, do not fear for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So they were completely surrounded by this army. The servant did not know that there was any way that they could make their way out of this. By all accounts, they are going to die. By all accounts, this is the Yankees having to play the Astros in the playoffs. They had no chance of winning. It's true. They got swept. It was terrible. I mean, it was great. For the Yankees, it was terrible. So he's thinking, we have no chance of living. And Elisha says to him, those who are with us are more than are with them. And he asks the Lord to open his eyes. And the eyes of this young man's heart, the eyes of the reality of the true things that were going around were open for this young man, and he can see the hills filled with soldiers and chariots of fire, the hosts, the armies, the angels of the Lord surrounding Elisha. All of a sudden, he was illuminated to the actual reality of what was going on around him. There were things that he could not see that were right there in front of them. So if that's the case, if God does things like this, if God moves in the world, even in ways where people cannot see it, is it possible for us to ever have a keen eye to see what God is doing in the world? You know, we're talking about the advent of hope this week, and essentially what we're talking about with hope is confidence and assurance of something even when we can't see it. It's belief, understanding that God is doing something even when we don't see the evidence of it right there at that moment. So how can we have the kind of hope that Elisha had? Interesting thing in this passage to me, it doesn't say that Elisha could see the armies. It doesn't say that he knew that they were there. I mean, he believed that God was there to protect them, but it's the young man who is able to see the chariots around them. How can we have this kind of vision? And the second question is, why is it that we don't see the things that God is doing in the world all the time? Why is our vision blocked for these things? The first thing I want to talk about today, why we don't see what God's doing in the world, is that we can't see what God has hidden. There are certain things that God is doing in the world and in human history that he has hidden from us on purpose, that we are not allowed to see until the appropriate time comes. In Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says to the people that are listening, he says, of that day and of that hour, talking about when he'll return the second time, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, but only my Father, no one knows. Let me repeat that for you. Of Jesus' return, no one knows when it's gonna happen. So if someone tells you that they know when Jesus is returning, they're either lying to you, deluded, A Yankees fan, something like that, they have issues because he says that no one knows. God has hidden that until the time comes. The Apostle Paul in the New Testament says that there was a great mystery hidden for thousands of years, that the kingdom of God was for all people, not just for Israel. That was hidden until the appropriate time that it was revealed. There are big things in scripture and in the history of the world that God has hidden until an appropriate time where it's gonna come. There are also things in your life and in my life individually that are hidden from us. I'm not gonna tell you anything that you don't already know here, but we live in time and in space. You cannot go backwards into the past. You can't move forward into the future. There are things that are going to happen to you and for you in your life, things that God has set aside that you just cannot know until they actually happen. But it's hard sometimes because we wanna know what's coming in the future. I'm going to get a little bit autobiographical with you here and tell you a little bit of my story. I grew up right here at 2nd at the Woodway Campus, and I became a believer when I was a young boy. My sister, who's seven years older than me, she led me to the Lord uh, when I was young. And so over time, as I grew, I learned more and grew more. And by the time I was in middle school, the middle of middle school, I would say I was a pretty serious believer. I cared about what God wanted for my life. I wanted to know the things that he wanted me to do, I wanted to please him. But I also, as I grew a little older, had questions about things that were coming in my future. I had desires that came up and things that I wanted to know. As I got into high school, I wanted girls to like me. They didn't. I wanted to know what God was gonna do with my life in the future, where I was gonna work. I couldn't know it. And I just have to confess to you that there were stretches of time where it felt to me like I was just kind of fumbling in the dark, asking God, God, can you just give me a glimpse, just the tiniest understanding of what's coming in my future? Can you just show me? And he wouldn't. I I couldn't see anything. I didn't know what was coming. The decision that I made, somewhere along the line, was it appears that God is not going to give me any foreknowledge into the future, unfortunately. So what I'm gonna try and do is please the Lord with the things that I do know that he wants me to do and just trust that he'll reveal the things that I need to know when I need to know them. That was the decision I made when I was a young person. There's another story of a girl in middle school, about 12 years old, and she was in South Korea. She was in her last summer of living there before moving off somewhere else. And in that last summer, she was spending some time with a friend of hers. They went shopping, and they were shopping outside. I hate shopping, so I don't have many shopping stories for myself, but for this girl, while they were shopping outside, rain clouds gathered, and it started to pour rain on them. And so when that happened, they ducked into the first building they could find. They didn't want to get wet. So when they went in, they found themselves in a little church. And neither of these girls were Christians, neither of their families were believers. They didn't know anything about God. They walk in there and the first girl actually elbowed her friend. She saw a statue of Jesus in the front and she said, what are they doing to that man? She didn't know what they were doing. And the people came up and told them, we are Christians, we worship Jesus. This is what we do, it's why we gather together. Well, when the rain let up, the second girl said, hey, let's go back and go shopping. But the first girl had questions. She wanted to know more about what this group of Christians were doing. Over the rest of that summer, she went back a few more times to talk to those Christians. And by the time that summer was over, she made the decision, I'm going to believe this. This is what I'm gonna do with my life. And, and that girl, she made that decision and moved off to China where her family moved. And her life took her a whole bunch of places. She went to university in China. She went to uh, graduate school in Hong Kong. She went to uh, another graduate degree in Monterey, California where the weather is terrible. And while she was there, she finished, and she got a job in a different city, and she knew that there was a girl that she met there that was from Houston, where she was moving. And so she said to the girl, do you have any church recommendations? I'm moving to this new city, and I don't know anyone. And the girl told her, yeah, when I was a kid, I went to Second Baptist Church. And and she said, okay. So the girl, this young lady, moved to Houston. She was in the Galleria area. And so she came to 1111, right here. And she was sitting there, and at the end, they said, if you're a visitor and you want to know more about our church, you can go over to the red door, which I see over there right now, and the visitor reception. And when she walked over to the red door, the person that was standing there was me. I was the one standing there. And the the story I just told you is the story of my wife. This is how my my wife became a believer. Uh, This is our family now. That's Elijah and Theodore, our two boys. Thank you. I made those guys. It was great. The reason I tell you that story is that when I was sitting in this room, going to 1111 from the time I was in middle school onward, when I was sitting in here, I had so many questions and things that I wanted to know about my future that I just couldn't see. And I would ask God over and over again, can you just show me, can you give me a glimpse? And he didn't, and I didn't know, but what I didn't know and what I couldn't see is that God was already orchestrating everything that I needed to know about my life way before I could have ever known what I needed. Think about this. When I started praying to the Lord, asking him about my future, and if I was gonna marry anybody, who I was gonna marry, at that time, my wife, Ronnie, didn't even speak English. There's no possible way that I could have had any glimpse into the future of the things that God was doing, but just because I couldn't see it did not mean that he wasn't doing it. God was working on something, even though I, I couldn't see it. So there are certain things in your life and in my life that are going to be hidden from us until the time that we see it. But that doesn't mean that we can't hold on to hope and belief that God is working even when it's not obvious to us. So we can't know the things that God has hidden. We can't see them. The second thing I want to talk about, and this one's a little more dangerous, we can't see when sin blocks our vision. If you have an unattended sin in your life and you let it fester and be there, the effect that it has is that it is going to delude you and keep you from being able to see reality as it is in front of you. Sin never leads to insight. Sin always leads into confusion and difficulty. Uh, Jesus, talking about his opponents, his biggest opponents in his ministry were the Pharisees, he described them as being blind people trying to lead other blind people. So what he said about them is because of their own sin, their own pride, their own arrogance, their own cultural expectations, they couldn't see the truth when it was right there. Jesus was everything that they were looking for, and they couldn't recognize him because sin was blocking their vision. There's another story that's always stood out to me in Scripture in the Old Testament with King Saul. Saul was the first king of Israel, and he had all of these characteristics that you would want in a king. He was strong. He was smart. He was brave. There was all these things he could do. But over and over again, Saul could not see what God wanted him to do. Sin blocks his vision over and over again. He would not have known God's will for his life if it slapped him in the face. And the only time that Saul ever knew what God really wanted from him was when the prophet Samuel would tell him. Samuel would say, God wants you to do this, God wants you to do that. Well, eventually Samuel died, and Saul was left in a difficult situation. The, the Lord rejected Saul as being the true king over Israel, and he said, David, it was going to come next. But Saul, in wanting to know what God wanted next for him, in his state of confusion and delusion, went to a witch, and asked the witch to raise Samuel from the dead so that Samuel could tell him what God wanted him to do. Does that not sound like a deluded, confused person to you? Sin blocks our vision from seeing what God wants us to do with our life. I came across a story a few months ago that I thought was hilarious, and I'm happy to share it with you. There was a British naval commander named Horatio Nelson, and Horatio was a great commander. Uh, He was very successful in all the things that he did, and there's a story from his life that, is hilarious. He was leading a group of ships that were going into a battle, but he was not the one who was ultimately in charge. There were other people making the call about what was gonna happen. But Horatio was convinced that if they were to attack, they were going to win the battle. But if they retreated, they were going to lose and everyone would die. So he was convinced, if we attack, we win, we retreat, we die. But he was told, you're going to attack, but if you see the signal, if you see the flare sent in the air, then you need to retreat. That's what his superiors told him. So he said, okay, and they went into the battle, and Horatio and his fleet, his ships, they attacked, and they won the battle. But it turned out, after the battle was over, that the signal to retreat was sent in the air, but he didn't see it. And how was that? Well, you've seen this before, you've all watched pirate movies, seafaring people have these little seafaring telescope eye things that they put up. You know, you put it up to one eye, and you look out, and you're scanning what's going on. Well, Horatio took that seafaring telescope to look for the signal, and he put it up to the eye where years before he had been blinded and couldn't see. He deliberately took his telescope and put it up to his blind eye, knowing that if they sent the signal, it wouldn't matter. They were gonna attack and win anyway. Now that's a funny, clever, clever little story for Horatio, but I wanna make something very clear to you right now. If you have some area of sin in your life that you're just keeping beside you as a pet that you don't wanna get rid of, you know, I've got it on a leash, it's under control, nothing to worry about, you are holding your telescope up to a blind eye. If you're allowing rage or lust or greed or envy to fester in its life just because you think that's your natural inclination, uh, well, I have a short temper. It's okay, I just have a short fuse. Sometimes I'm going to blow up at the lady in the supermarket aisle and she deserved it anyway. It's not hurting anyone, it's fine. Maybe you're saying I'm dealing with lust, but it's okay because God made me this way, no one knows about it, it's not hurting anybody. The person that it's hurting is you and everyone in your circle of influence coming after you. Sin keeps you from being able to see the reality of what God's put in front of you. I want to put it to you this way. What if there's a person that God has placed in your life that he wants you to share the gospel with? If you are deluded by your own sin, are you going to be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to know when he's calling you to share the gospel with somebody? Are you going to be sensitive enough to the Holy Spirit to know when to make wise decisions in your life? Of course not. We can't see when sin blocks our vision. We need to be extremely careful about that. So if we can't see the things that God has hidden, and we can't see when sin blocks our vision, what is the way that we can come to know what God has actually called us to do? And this is a really simple one-minute thing I'll put out there. The key to help you see what is the truth in front of you is that discipleship helps us to see. The reason that Elisha could see the things that God was doing beforehand, he had hope at what God was doing, is because he had seen God do it through Elijah before him. He had watched somebody model it for him. Do you have a person in your life right now that is farther along in their walk with the Lord than you, that you can learn from, that you can watch and say, how do you do this? Teach me, help me with what's going on in my life right now. If you don't have any form of discipleship in your life, if you're not in a Bible study class, if you're not in a small group with other believers, you are setting yourself up to be walking blindly through your life. I read a story a couple years ago, and it was about a guy named Andrew Claven. And Andrew is like a tough guy, mystery, crime writer, a really, good, really good writer. But the thing I read was his autobiography. And he grew up ethnically Jewish, rejected the faith of his family when he was young, and he was an atheist. And over a long period of time, he ended up becoming a Christian. And he tells that story in his book. But there was one episode in his life that really stuck out to me. When he was a young man, he had just gotten married, started a family, had a child. He was in a moment of despair in his life. He had some real trauma from his past. He was working through emotional issues for himself. The main thing that was really eating at him was that he had a calling to write and to have people understand the things he had written, but he was not getting any recognition. He wasn't getting published. People didn't understand what he was trying to say. And he said there was a night that he sat there in his room, in a dark room, chain smoking, cigarette after cigarette, and just despairing about his life. He said he was listening to a baseball game on the radio, and for those of you who are young, uh, the sports were were watched differently than they are now. You couldn't watch highlights afterward. You would have to listen to the entire radio broadcast, which is just terrible. My attention spans about three minutes maximum. But he sat there, and he was was listening to a Mets game, which is just torture on torture. But he was listening to a Mets game, and he said a worm of a thought made its way into his mind. And that thought was, I don't know how to live. And he just over and over again, frustrated with his life, frustrated with his family, frustrated with his work. I don't know how to live. I don't know how to live. Smoking cigarette after cigarette. And then at the end of that game, the Mets had a catcher named Gary Carter, uh, and he was an outspoken Christian, and it was kinda like Tim Tebow, but a lot less famous and good-looking and rich. But he was, a, he was an outspoken Christian, and there was a part in the game where he hit a ground ball, he beat out the ground ball to first base, and the Mets won because of it. And so after the game, they were interviewing him, and the interviewer asked, Gary, you have terrible knees. How were you able to gut out that ground ball to first base and lead your team to victory? And if Gary had said something like, Well, it's all because of my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that this happened. Andrew would not have been able to receive that. He was not in a place to hear that at the moment. But what Gary said instead is he said, sometimes you just have to play through pain. And Andrew said when he heard that, it was like a ray of light and hope shot into his life. He was sitting there despairing with existential dread about everything in his life. But all of a sudden, that little nugget of truth, Andrew said, I can play through pain. I know how to do that. I did that when I was in sports all the way through and it took him off the ledge, metaphorically. And what Andrew said after that is he said, what I didn't know and what I couldn't see in that moment as I was sitting there despairing, everything in my life was about to change in about two weeks. Within two weeks to a month, he was gonna get his first work that he was writing published. He was gonna have a major breakthrough in the therapy that he was doing. His entire life was about to change, but he just couldn't see it. He was sitting there at the edge of despair, but God was about to change everything in this guy's life. And here's the simple thing I wanna put out to you right now. You might be at a moment in your life right now where you feel like things are not gonna get better. Maybe you have an area of sin that you just can't get rid of and you feel like it's never gonna change. Maybe you have relationships that are broken that you feel like are never going to get better. And the thing that I wanna ask you is this, how do you know that the armies of the Lord are not surrounding you right at that moment where you are in your deepest moment of despair? How do you know that God is not about to do something incredible in your life? The idea of hope, it doesn't mean ignoring the bad things that happen in life. Obviously, there are brutal things that happen in our life and I'm not discounting that for any of you, but you don't know what God is doing behind the scenes. There are things that he is working and doing and if you are a believer, if you know him, God has plans and good things in store for you. You have to hold on to hope in those moments because God is doing things behind the scenes that you have no idea about. So look at your life right now and my last question for you is this, what do you see?